This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Recently, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a dire warning. The world is dangerously close to runaway climate warming, and human activity is unequivocally to blame. Greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere are high enough to guarantee climate disruptions for decades, if not centuries to come. And after a summer of deadly heat waves, flash floods, and raging wildfires, all of which are believed to be one outcome of changing climate, the impacts of climate change are tangible and terrifying. But in the conversations about climate change, there is little heard from or said about the millions of people who live with disabilities around the world. Today, we discuss disability and climate change. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. Really excited for today's show. It's a tough topic to talk about, but a necessary conversation. I've been reading a lot of the headlines and the coverage around climate change. It seems like there are so many stories all more or less saying the same thing, that we are facing some climate tipping points and things are getting pretty dire out there and the time to act is now. And as a person with a disability, one of the noticeable omissions from a lot of that conversation is around the disability angle and the impacts of changing climate on people with disabilities on the one hand, but also uh, a conversation about how people with disabilities might contribute to strategies for climate adaptation in the long term and in a constructive way. To go over all this with me, I am joined today by Marlena Chertok, who is a digital storyteller, poet, and communication specialist, Water, at World Resources Institute. She joins me today from Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's really great to talk to you about some of your work. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here with you. Tell us a little bit about World Resources Institute and what you do there. Yeah, World Resources Institute is a global think tank and research institution that focuses on key environmental issues facing the world, uh, climate change. Uh, my program focuses on water risk, water stress, um, and and really we're invested in finding solutions and presenting them and working with governments and companies and people on the ground to address uh, climate impacts. And so how do you get involved with working on this issue around climate change and focusing in on people with disabilities? Yeah, so so I did not study this. <laughs> I studied <laughs> journalism, and I really believe in the power of uh, storytelling to create change. Um, not only do I focus on more of the technical side and translating the the amazing publications that the researchers at WRI produce uh, to more of a general audience. But I also 
write some science fiction in my in my own time. And I just really believe that reading about people's stories and seeing what's happening now and potentially in the future should be inspiring us to to do something. Like you were saying uh, at the beginning, we really don't have any time to waste. Uh, the time is now, and we're seeing that from the youth. Uh, we're seeing that from Indigenous folks. Really, we are behind schedule in, in trying to address this because I'm a person with a disability. Uh, I'm also deeply invested in, in governments, including me and my fellow disabled peers, in climate action plans mm-hmm. because otherwise we really are going to be left out. You know, a lot of the recent coverage, I've been reading a lot of articles about this, which is why I wanted to have somebody on the show to talk about it. They talk about things like climate tipping points, a point of no mm-hmm. return. You know, in the UN report that I referenced off the top, they said, uh, the Secretary General said, this is code red for humanity. So yes, there's a sense of urgency, but also a sense of anxiety for me as a person with a disability when I think about the absence of a disability lens in this whole conversation about climate change and adaptation. Do you feel anxious? I mean, how do you feel when you think about this big conversation happening about climate change and not really bringing in a a, a corresponding discussion about how this impacts people with disabilities? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I've heard heard it called eco-anxiety, eco-grief. I definitely am terrified. And I think a lot of other people are really, really worried about this. And just over the, the, the last few years, things have been really intensifying. Um, and people are, are, are starting to really see these, these effects uh, in their backyards. And I think something that's really important to keep in mind is that 15% of the world's population is disabled. Uh, that's a huge percentage, nearly 1 billion people, according to, to the World Bank. And so if, if governments and adaptation plans leave out people with disabilities, that's a huge percentage of the population. Um, I think that, you know, considering it's not only critical to include people with disabilities in these uh, strategies, but including our voices and including our decision making uh, is is really crucial because disability isn't a monolith. Um, mm-hmm. I I have a skeletal dysplasia and a few other of my family members do as well, but it affects us all so differently. And that's something that I think a lot of people still have to learn is that disability can look like somebody using a wheelchair or somebody who uh, needs different assistant assistive devices, but it can also be invisible. It can be mental health. It can look so many ways. And that's another crucial aspect of this is that how is climate change going to affect uh, people with disabilities, but how is it going to affect a variety of disabilities? And Mm -hmm. just in terms of, you know, like, for instance, during during wildfires or during during flooding uh, and, and natural disasters such as those, when a, the call goes out to evacuate, how is that call shared? Is it shared in Braille? Is it shared in multiple uh, languages and and ways? And how how are people with disabilities going to be able to evacuate if they have mobility issues, for instance, if they need electricity for their uh, assistive devices. I just think that, you, like you were saying, this is a huge emission. Mm-hmm. 
I don't want to induce too much anxiety in the conversation. So I want to try and keep us as solution focused as possible. With that mm-hmm. said, we'll come back to some of these conver- issues that you've raised in a few minutes. But a very common sort of debate in my household is what is the response? What is the responsibility of an individual? So where do we make the biggest impact? Is it our individual, you know, going to a beach to do a cleanup or recycling our garbage or trying to uh, live a zero waste lifestyle? Is that where we make a difference as individuals? Or is it for pushing uh, for system wide change? So pushing governments to look at how they phase out fossil fuels, what is the best way for a person, an individual to intercede and try and deal with the climate crisis? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And it's, it's, it's hard for me to balance because Mm -hmm. I'm kind of at the, uh, in, in the middle of both of those conversations, just in, in my nature of work. And I think absolutely there's an individual role in all of this. However, I think, uh, for a long time, uh, you know, big PR and big oil companies have worked to really, you know, lower the blame on themselves and push for individual action instead of the blame on them. Um, and really, that's what we need. I mean, you were you were reading off some of those uh, warnings from the IPCC report. It is code red. So we need all hands on deck. We can't just do this individually alone it needs to be a system-wide collective action type of type of shift which is also a a little bit fear inducing right because nothing like this has happened uh in, in human history but there are really interesting powerful examples on the ground everywhere of of what's being done um Small island nations and indigenous communities, for instance, are really uh, on the forefront of a lot of this and have already been, you know, figuring out what they need to do to adapt, whether it's sea level rise or uh, uh, lack of water, because they're on the they're on the forefront. And and something else to think about, too, is uh Disabled people, we we move through a world that isn't designed with us in mind, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's we have to create workarounds and design our own solutions and be our own advocates, and that really requires a lot of resilience. And that's something the climate justice movement is is really increasingly calling for. So I think disabled people are are huge uh, partners in this journey. I'm glad you brought up the word resilience, because when we think about resilience, I think about all the wildfires we've had here in Canada and British Columbia, and of course, in other places as well. But just this summer, we had Mm -hmm. devastating wildfires in British Columbia, wiping out entire small towns. Mm. We said earlier in our conversation that it's important to think about emergency notifications and making sure that people with disabilities are not forgotten. But beyond that, what other measures do you think can be taken to build resiliency in those situations and ensure an approach that is inclusive of people with disabilities when dealing with extreme weather events? Yeah, I I think that's really critical. Um, I'm not an expert on what specifically is needed, but Mm. I think that including uh, multiple languages, making sure early warning systems come out in, uh, you know, Braille, uh, are they helpful for people who are deaf, Um, you know, thinking through all types of formats 
And then before that, like you were saying, how can we, uh, you know, keep keep that from happening? I I know that um, uh, indigenous communities have often been the the caretakers of land and and forests and and things mm-hmm. of that nature, and did controlled fires um, to to really keep you know keep the land from becoming engulfed in in wildfires like we've been seeing. So I think going back to a lot of that deep knowledge um, is really crucial too. I think that you know it, it it's it's so intertwined. Um, there's and I think there's no one size fits all solution. That kind of goes back to your question about individual action versus system change. I think it's going to look very different in different spaces. Uh, mm-hmm. People have different capacities. Some people are able to completely change their diet and, and have more plant-based uh, food that they're able to eat. Some people are not able to. Sometimes that's more expensive. Um, and, and, and sometimes even just education and resource awareness is really much more needed in terms of, uh, you know, food waste, in terms of things of that nature. And, and something that I'm thinking about, too, um, is even just in terms of uh, that individual action of changing your plastic use and trying to use like something like a metal straw or reusable containers. Um, there was a big, uh, a few years ago, a big awareness raising from people with disabilities on social media who said, hey, actually, plastic straws are life-saving for many of us. And so you can't forget that uh, when, when it comes to even a small thing as a plastic straw. I think it, it, that's, that's the whole point I'm trying to make of it's not going to look the same everywhere. I'm Juita Gupta, and my guest today is Marlene Chertok, who is a digital storyteller, poet, and communications officer, Water at World Resources Institute. It's one of the most interesting ways to intercede in a public discourse and public conversation is to do so through art and activism, take some very interesting forms. I've seen some truly creative things happen when artists and activists collaborate on social justice and environmental justice issues. And as I mentioned off the top of the program, Marlena is also a poet and would like to share some of her writing with us. Marlena? Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, this piece is called How to Feel Beautiful. How to feel beautiful when you're a 25-year-old with 80-year-old bones, wear dresses every day because they're easier to slip on, put on your darkest shade of lipstick to match what feels like blood seeping out of you, cut your hair short so it styles itself, less work in the morning when you wake up with an orchestra of drumstick knuckle cracks, Tell yourself you're beautiful so you start feeling it. Ignore the coupling up all around you. Be strong on your own. You'll never have the bodies you see in magazines. Never walk without a limp at the end of the day. So tell yourself your size and shape is all you have. Your blood is still made up of iron from ancient... Your blood is still made up of iron from ancient stars. That's beautiful. That is really incredible. Now, tell me a little bit about how you feel as an artist and as a poet that your work 
intercedes or intervenes in a climate change conversation that can get pretty contentious? Yeah, so I've been writing poetry and short stories for as long as I can remember. And I write a lot about uh, what I love and what terrifies me. And a lot of that is this earth that is our home, our only home, and, and climate change, which is really threatening our very existence. So I do a lot of um, just kind of like odes to, to earth, to, to living here, and also to try, try to uh, give a little kick in the butt to get us <laughs> moving on climate action. Um, speaking of getting moving on climate action, a couple of years back, I think things have now sort of cooled down a little bit, but a couple of years back, and you alluded to the straw ban and some of the debates that sprung up around that. And when I think back to that whole debate about the plastic straw and single use items, and it's not just, you know, plastic straws, it could be cutlery, it could be um, Mm -hmm. medical provisions, like people with disabilities rely on single use plastics. Do you feel that that whole debate in looking back on it, reflects an inability to collaborate between those who work on environmental issues and people who work on disability justice issues. Could we have done something differently in that instance? Yeah, I think you make a really good point. I think there was a huge disconnect of uh, environmental movements thinking, okay, this is this is a very clear-cut issue, right? This is how mm-hmm. we can limit plastic uh, pollution. And everybody got on board and a huge part of the population was left out um, and really rely on, on these single use uh, uh, plastics for, for their lives. And I think that hopefully in the future, um, when we are creating solutions and when we're implementing adaptation measures, uh, that doesn't happen. I hope that that was really a wake up call. I, I just want to mention uh, a motto that I've, I've been trying to adhere to and just listening to more, which is nothing about us without us. And it's a motto that disability activists have been using for, for years. And I'm hoping that that can really stick in the brains of decision makers and environmentalists where really you can't just make a decision in a vacuum. Uh, you have to involve all the stakeholders And that really does uh, include people with disabilities. In the spirit of nothing about us without us, to what extent would you say eco-justice is disability justice? I think it's so interconnected. I think that people who are most impacted by climate change right now are the poor and most vulnerable communities. And a lot of times that is people with disabilities. A lot of times that is people who are poor and uh, with lack of access to a variety of resources. And not only that, but climate change impacts and natural disasters may also cause disabilities. So mm-hmm. this is not only something to consider for currently disabled people, but how are these impacts going to potentially cause uh, more people to be disabled? I think that these impacts that we're seeing now and, and things that are coming in our future, we really need to do a lot more thinking uh, and a lot more collective planning and decision-making and actions to, to really try to, try to keep more people from, from harm. 
speaking of, you know, disability, one of the common threads that run through a lot of the academic literature is studies around uh, pesticide use and the fact that people with disabilities, uh, you know, that, that there are birth defects associated with toxins and pesticides. So what do you think happens when we have those studies making headlines? What does that say about academic conceptions of disability and if those are the kinds of studies that everyone is leaning on and reading about, and if that's the the overarching conception of disability, what's being left off the table? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of times disability is thought of as, as such a monolith. Um, and I'm just hoping if, if there's one thing people take away from this discussion, it's that it is very much not. <laughs> it looks mm-hmm. different for everyone. And so, you know, even if uh, there's something that we can be doing to to limit um, potential birth defects, uh, I think that underlying behind behind messaging of that is that disability is bad and a negative thing. And I just hope that you know it's it's not a dirty word to say I have a disability. It's a community that I'm so incredibly proud to be a part of, and I've learned so much from other disabled people. And people with disabilities are so incredibly resilient and create our own adaptations. So that's why I think there is such an intersection there uh, of things that people can learn for how to adjust to climate change. I mean, we've been making adaptations throughout our lives because Mm -hmm. we live in a world that's not for us. So I think uh, just thinking about about that, that, that disability doesn't and shouldn't be a dirty word um but then but then again you know it's keeping keeping harm and keeping pain from people is something that's important to me too we've only got a few minutes left here and i believe you have a book launch uh, that you are a part of that's coming up tonight what can you tell us about it and i believe it's a virtual event so maybe you could also let us know how we might catch the book launch ourselves Yes, it is. So it is a book launch for an anthology. Uh, It's called The Forgotten River, an Anacostia Swim Club member anthology for the Anacostia River in Washington, D.C. And it is tonight. Virtual tickets are from zero to $15. You can pay what you can. And I'm just really uh, thrilled to be a part of it. I think that this, this shows the connection that poets have with nature and, and our environment. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to throw a bit of a a curveball your way. I hope you don't mind. But in about a minute, what is it about our current struggles with climate change and our current struggles around disability justice that makes you hopeful? Hmm. I recently uh, received an invitation from the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment to, to join the Phoenix Consultation. Um, which was a regional dialogue of children and young people. And it took place virtually due to this, you know, ongoing pandemic. And it was just so incredible to hear from young people around the world working on climate change. And they had asked me to speak on disability and climate change. And they had, you know, a variety of other intersections that they were learning about. And I think just knowing the strength uh, of young people and how, you know, they were born into this world that is already a changing climate. Uh, it is it has just been gifted to them as <laughs> a terrible gift. 
And I think seeing their drive and passion and ability to speak up to the powers that be is really inspiring to me. And I'm sorry, that was over then, over a minute. (laughs) Marlena, thank you very much for being on the program today. Thank you so much. Marlena Churchock is a digital storyteller, poet, and communications officer, Water, at World Resources Institute. If you missed any of our conversation, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio, and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.